Well, it is really good to be with you uh, this morning, and I'm so glad that you are here. And I'm privileged to have the opportunity this morning to just open God's Word and allow it to speak to us, allow it to teach us. Uh, before we jump into Ephesians, the middle there of chapter 6, I think we do need to look back a little bit of all the things that God has taught us through this amazing uh, book. So remember, this is a letter written by Paul to the church at Ephesus. Um, this letter would have been read in one sitting. So we're spreading it out over 16 weeks, uh, but the church at Ephesus would have heard it all at one time. So you have to kind of keep that in mind um, to understand the context of what's going on. So let's just take a moment and kind of think back through some of the things that we have learned. And I know that you haven't been here necessarily every week, um, and we're not going to go over every week, but I would encourage you maybe to go back and listen to the podcast and uh, we, do, we have a guide that we did through Ephesians chapter 4 as well, and there's a lot, of, a lot of tools that are out there to help you, but as you remember, the first three chapters of Ephesians really teach us tremendous truth and theology. It's just packed full of the nature of God and the nature of our salvation. We've talked about the fact that we've been given many spiritual blessings uh, that include God's love and acceptance. Chapter 2, we realize the reality that Though we once were deep in sin and darkness, God in his grace and mercy has rescued us. He has adopted us. He's made us joint heirs with Jesus Christ, as it talks about. And, and we talked about the fact that one day Jesus is coming back to redeem us, to keep us and save us for himself. We talked in chapter 3. We dealt with what does it mean to be rooted and grounded in love? Uh, what does that mean for us as individuals? What does that mean for us as a church family. Then in chapter four, there's a little bit of a turn, and we, we deal a little bit more with just some practical things. So like, because of what we've learned in chapters one through three, how should that affect who we are? Is this just knowledge that we take in, or should it actually create some sort of change? And so chapters four, five, and six really deal with that. We talked about in chapter four, what does it mean to walk in a manner worthy of your calling? How do we walk day in and day out as those who have been redeemed through Jesus Christ. Talked about putting on love and humility, loving one another because we are united in Jesus Christ. Uh, we are told not to live like we used to, right? In fact, we're told to take off the old self and put on the new self for his glory. And then the last two weeks, we've dealt with this idea of imitating God. What does that mean? That's a pretty profound statement. But how do we imitate God? What is that what does that mean for our homes? How does that affect our relationship with our spouse? How does that affect our relationship with our children or our parents, um, our bosses or our employees, our coworkers? What does it mean to imitate God? And going back to the reality that all of this, all of this is being done in our life so that God may be glorified. And so today we're looking at the middle part of Ephesians chapter 6. And I just want to read, it's kind of a lengthy passage, so I want to read it for us. Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 10, and I will read through verse 20 if you have a Bible or some sort of electronic device. Get that out. It will be on the screen as well. But Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, 
but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Let's pray together. Father God, this is your good word for us today. And God, we ask that your Holy Spirit, who indwells those of us who have confessed our faith in you, Father, that your Holy Spirit would illuminate this truth. Father, that we would see your work in our lives through your word today. We ask this in the powerful name of Christ. Amen. So I want to kind of go ahead and just begin by giving you the outline, kind of what are the things we're going to cover uh, today. So really based upon this passage, I think there's three questions that we have to answer, and they are this, okay? Who do we battle? Well, we battle the devil. We battle Satan. We battle his evil demons and all that he is wanting to do in our lives to ruin us. So there you go. Praise God for that, right? We battle the devil. What do we battle? We battle his evil schemes. Scripture says that he has evil schemes, fiery darts, as it says, right? And we battle those. How do we battle? Well, we battle with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we're going to kind of walk through the scripture and see how those questions are answered. So here we are nearing the end of this letter, and Paul finally says this word that we all long to hear when the preacher is preaching, finally, right? Um, We want to hear this word. And finally, here doesn't necessarily mean the end. It's really more of a mindset that he is trying to help us embrace. It's more this idea that in regards to everything that I've taught you so far and everything that I'm about to teach you for the rest of the time that you have on this earth, give everything you've got to do this, to accomplish this. It's kind of this idea that, you know, the coach brings his team together at the end of the game And even though they're winning, he brings them together and says, guys, now's not the time to quit, right? All the things that you've learned, all the things that I've taught you in practice, man, keep at it. And that's kind of the sense of what Paul is saying when he says, finally. And he says, finally, be strong in the Lord. This phrase, be strong in the Lord, emphasizes two things. First, this is not like this American dream, pull yourself up by your bootstraps kind of speech. Um, But this is a call to depend upon the strength of, of God. Be strong in the Lord. And then secondly, the way this is written is not like a one-time act, but more of, uh, of a long-term commitment. So he's saying, keep being strong. Not just go out one time and be strong, but keep being strong in the Lord. And do this because the Lord is with you. Do this because he will never leave you or forsake you. So verse 11, he says, put on the whole armor of God. Why? 
that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. I think that typically when we think about Satan, we tend to err on one side or the other. Uh, C.S. Lewis, in the intro to his book, The Screwtape Letters, uh, he speaks of this concept and says there are two equal and opposite errors you can fall into regarding the work of the devil. One being an unhealthy overestimation, thinking that the devil is in everything, right? And that, that creates this paranoia. Or two, an unhealthy underestimation and completely disregard he does anything at all or, or even question his existence. And this view causes us to be naive, kind of stick your head in the sand kind of approach. Lewis goes on to say that they themselves, meaning the devil and his demons, are equally pleased with both of these errors because he wants us to be confused. He wants nothing more than for us to be uninformed about who he is and what he has done, what he is doing. But as Christians, we must have a biblical perspective of the devil and his work. And the Bible actually has a lot to say about who he is and what he does. 1 Peter 5, 8 says that our enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Uh, in, the, in the creation account in Genesis chapter 1, we deal with this amazing thing that happens where God creates everything out of nothing. He creates man and woman and talks about this perfect relationship that happens between man and woman and God himself until uh, Satan manifests himself as a serpent and enters the picture. And what does he do? He tempts, he lies, he twists the truth. And that's what he continues to do. We see in the Gospels where Jesus is in the desert. He's been fasting for 40 days. And who comes to him? Satan, trying to tempt him. And, Satan, and, and Jesus resists that temptation. And I, I think that many times we, we don't see the devil for who he really is and what he is actually trying to do. So we must have a biblical understanding of what he is attempting to do. Paul says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. What Paul is saying is that we do not wrestle only against flesh and blood. Of anyone, Paul should know that we do wrestle against flesh and blood. I mean, this man's been beaten, he's been stoned, he's been thrown in prison, he's been threatened. He knows what it means to wrestle with flesh and blood, but what he is saying is that when we experience things like war, neglect, racism, crime, and poverty, we recognize that this as evil that is taking on the form of flesh and blood. The flesh and blood forms of evil participate with something beyond flesh and blood, something supernatural, which we must identify as the work of Satan. Honestly, this is where it's hard for us as modern Western thinkers uh, because we tend to think that everything has a natural cause or a scientific explanation. So we tend to think that those evil acts have a natural cause like upbringing or social systems or culture. We look at the sin of racism, for instance, and we try to explain it as psychological or, or cultural upbringing when we need to recognize it as evil. So can there be psychological or physiological factors even, or issues in how we are raised or cultural or social influences? Sure, and those things can aggravate or accentuate or shape what is the innate self-centeredness, the innate 
self-insecurities or blindness, but those things don't create evil. It's that innate evil that exists in every person due to the brokenness that entered this world with Adam and Eve that is aggravated by the devil himself that makes the world the way it is and causes us to have to battle, right? For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So who do we battle? Brothers and sisters, we we battle the devil. Secondly, what do we battle? We battle his schemes. A couple things that I want us to see is, you notice how many times the word against is used here? Uh, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers. When you study God's word and any time you see a word or phrase repeated multiple times, that should be kind of a red flag for us to to pay attention. Uh, You know, in the Gospels where Jesus is teaching and he'll say things like, surely, surely, I say unto you, or truly, truly, I say unto you. That's That's a tool that is used to bring emphasis. And that's what's happening here. The word against Uh, is used six times in this one verse. And so I think we should understand what this word means. The word against here literally means in the face of. So this is not a passive word. This is not an idea that the battle is going on and it doesn't really affect me. No, this is an active word where we are in the ready position to do battle, not turning our back on the battle, not pretending it doesn't exist, but to face it head on. It says we are to put on the whole armor. The the idea of the whole armor means this. It literally means to sink into, meaning head to toe, covered up with the armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. The word schemes here, interestingly enough, is is this Greek word methodia, which actually we get the word method, right? Um, And it can also be translated strategy. So understand what this is saying. It means that the devil has a strategy to attack you. It's not like just this general fight that he just kind of attacks everybody with the same thing. But he has a strategy that he is working against you. He's not passive, but he is intentional in his attack, and he learns the best way to attack you. I heard this illustration this week that I think is amazing to help us understand this. Um, you know, in a piano, which we don't have like a real piano up here, which I'm not bitter about it at all, but you know, like in a, like a piano that has like a lid and it has strings, right, an acoustic piano, you know that if you open up the lid and you sing a pitch, a note, into the piano, whatever string coordinates with the pitch you're singing will actually vibrate. I tried it last night and it actually works. So it's the word resonate, right, that that string will resonate with the pitch that you're singing. So here's the deal. The devil knows what pitch you resonate with, and he'll hit you with it over and over and over again. He knows that temptation. You know that, you know that temptation that you, that you fight with constantly, that, that kind of habitual sin that you keep fighting against, and you think, you've, you think you've beat it, and then once again, it comes back? The devil knows that's your note. And he keeps hitting it, and he keeps hitting it. You know that accusation that you feel, that guilt that you feel that you're like, I know I shouldn't believe this, but I keep, I keep feeling guilty? The devil is doing everything he can to remind you of that, and he hits you with it over and over and over again. So what do we do with this? 
Well, first we close the piano, right? I mean, we get out of there and we put on the armor of God. The word devil here is, is the word um, diabolos, which we think of the word diabolical, but it's actually more than that. It's interesting. The word uh, diabolos is the noun form of the verb meaning to lie and slander. At the core of who he is, he is a liar. And the main way that the devil attacks you is by lying. John chapter 8, verse 44, Jesus is speaking about the devil, and he says this, He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. This is his strategy specifically for us, is that he lies. We saw it in the garden, how he lied to, to Eve, and he twisted the truth. We saw it when he approached Jesus, and he lies to Jesus. Tim Keller, a great pastor and author, he says that the devil's lying will take two different forms, temptation and accusation. Right? These are two distinct ways that the devil lies to us. So let's, let's talk a little bit about these two things. What is the difference between temptation and accusation? A temptation is this. Uh, the devil will tempt you by, by giving you, making you think you have too high of a view of yourself. Basically saying, oh, you won't give in to that. You won't fall into that. It, it's okay. And even if you do, God's going to forgive you. So it, it's okay. Satan does this by hiding from us God's holiness and God's God's hatred of sin, and he plays up God's love and God's forgiveness. What about accusation? Accusation is having too low a view of yourself, which can cause self-hatred and guilt. So Satan does this by hiding from us God's love and his mercy, and he plays up God's holiness and wrath. Uh, John Newton, which you may know that name, is 1700. Uh, 17th century pastor and hymn writer. He wrote the hymn Amazing Grace. Um, he was, I read this this week, he was writing to a young man that, that he was mentoring and that was depressed and experiencing a lot of guilt and accusations. And he says this, he says, you cannot be too aware of all your inward and inbred sins, but you may be, and indeed you are, improperly affected by them. You express not only a low opinion of yourself, which is certainly right. So if you want to get over pride, read John Newton. Uh, you have a low opinion of yourself, which is, yeah, you probably do. Um, but you also express too low of opinion of the person, work, and promises of the Redeemer, which is certainly wrong. Temptations and accusations are the lies that the devil uses. These are his, his fiery darts. This week I came across a book written, um, uh, also old book, 1700s, uh, just a word, like read old dead guys because it's the greatest truth that you can find, okay? Um, there's a Puritan pastor, his name is Thomas Brooks, and the name of his book is this, Precious Remedies to Defeat Satan's Devices. Isn't that good? You can actually get it, I think, on Kindle for like 99 cents. Um, in his book, he has over 50 examples and he breaks them up into two categories, this, the category of, of temptation, this category of accusation. So I just want to read some of them for you, and I just want you to hear them and see if, if you resonate uh, with any of these. In the category of temptation, 
This is a temptation that Satan throws at us. He shows you the bait, but he hides the hook. This, this short-term pleasure that he's going he's gonna to hold up. If you'll do this, it's going to be great. He, he hides from you the, the long-term misery. Number two, he tempts you by getting you to rationalize sin as virtue. This looks like this. I'm not really greedy. I'm just thrifty. Uh, you know, I'm not nosy or a gossip. I'm just really concerned. I'm not an alcoholic. I'm just sociable, right? I mean, th- these other things that we try to create, we rationalize our sin. He tempts us by overstressing the mercy of God. Just go ahead and do it. He'll forgive you. That's his job anyway, right? Number four, by making you bitter over suffering. Um, you are wondered why so many like high-powered people and unfortunately even leaders in the Christian church find their way into sin. And um, it's because they, they get this. You don't know how much hard, how hard I have it. You don't know how much I work. I deserve this. It's a temptation. It's a lie from the devil. Number five, by showing Christians how many bad people are having great lives. I mean, you might as well do it, right? Being good hasn't paid off. Number six, by getting you to compare one part of your life to another. That looks like this. Like, I'm, I'm good at this part, so it's okay if I mess up a little bit in this area. It's like the mafia hitman. I kill people, but I'm good to the family. It's okay, right? He rationalizes it. What about these as accusations? He accuses us by causing you to look more at your sin than at your Savior. He accuses us by causing you to obsess over past sins that you can't do anything to change. He accuses us by making you think the troubles you are going through must be punishments. Or accuses us by making you think the inner struggles that you are having, you wouldn't be having if you are a real Christian. Do you recognize any of these? you resonate uh, with any of these? He's playing our strings, right? And we must do battle. So who do we battle? We battle the devil. What do we battle? We battle against his evil schemes. He's nasty. He's out to destroy you. But here's the deal. He knows he can't. He knows he can't destroy you, but he's out to do anything he can to point your attention away from Jesus and really onto yourself. So number three, how do we battle? The Bible uses this amazing imagery here to describe the armor of God. So I want to read it for us one more time. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and the shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. I just want to make a couple comments here about the armor. First, this phrase, put on, which is not a new phrase uh, to us. This phrase was back in Ephesians 4, when again, we're instructed to take off the old self, put on the new self. We mentioned earlier, this phrase, put on, means to sink into. It's this, this idea of being completely immersed in the armor of God. Also notice that the verb tenses throughout this section are all past tense, having fastened the belt of truth, 
having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and so on. So here's the idea. You don't wait until you're in the battle to decide to put on the armor because the arrows are coming. The devil is waiting, and he's ready to attack with his lies at any chance he gets, so we can't wait to suit up. So what is it that we are to put on? I've read some really great commentaries about um, each aspect of the armor and the importance and necessity of each piece. But I think that we could bring all of the components that are mentioned in the armor of God and say this, that the armor of God is the gospel, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, shoes representing peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit. This is the gospel of Christ. We, we have been given truth, and this truth shall set us free, right? We have been declared righteous because of the work of Christ on the cross. Therefore, we can have peace. It is by grace that you have been saved through faith. So how do we fight? Well, we fight by participating with Christ and the work he has done in our lives to save us. We participate with what he has already done. We recognize that. What, what does that look like specifically? It looks like this. We preach the gospel to ourselves. If you've been around a while, you've, you've heard me use that term because it, honestly that term, that phrase has kind of radically changed my life. We preach the gospel to ourselves. When we recognize the temptations of the devil, we remind ourselves that Jesus came to bring life. And giving into that temptation will not bring life, but will actually bring hurt. When the devil is accusing us, we remind ourselves that Jesus did not come into this world to condemn us, but that we might be saved. We preach this truth to ourselves, that there is no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ. And ultimately, we claim this reality. Greater is he that is in me than he who is in the world. So yes, we fight and we struggle and we battle, but the battle is one, and Jesus is victorious, therefore we are victorious. Praise God. Listen, if you believe that you are saved by living a good life, that you can somehow do enough good in your life to earn your acceptance by God, then all of life you're really in one of two spaces. Sometimes you feel like a sinner because you have failed, Sometimes you feel loved and accepted because you did right. But if you believed you are saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ described in God's word, the gospel that looks like this, God created everything, therefore he owns everything. He is perfectly holy and all that he does is good. God created man in perfect relationship with God, but man chose to rebel against God, to believe the lies of Satan, and to give in to his temptation, therefore breaking our relationship with God. But God, in his loving mercy and grace, sent his son Jesus to come to this earth, live a perfect, sinless life, die on the cross as our substitute, paying the penalty of the sin, paying the penalty for the sin that we could not pay, and then rising again from the grave three days later, victorious over death and over sin, in order to restore that relationship with God. If you believe that, that and have accepted that truth by faith, then you walk around with these two truths all the time. Number one, my sin was so bad that nothing less than the death of God's Son could save me. 
Yes, I am a sinner, and I am completely undeserving of the grace of God. But number two, God, in his infinite mercy, loves me and has chosen me and has accepted me and has adopted me into his family and into his kingdom. Both of those things are completely true. We're completely undeserving of his grace, but yet he freely shows his grace to us. So we can indeed say, greater is he that is in me, not my sin, not my rebellion, but the Lord Jesus Christ, than he that is in the world. So how do we fight? We don't pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and somehow believe that that we can win because we're good enough. No, we claim the work of Christ in our lives and by faith given to us by God, we live in the victory won by Jesus Christ. I remember these shirts years ago that said, next time Satan reminds you of your past, remind him of his future. And as cliche as that is, it's so true. We see this final instruction in verse 18 where Paul says this, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. First of all, who are the saints? Uh, Well, that's us. That's anyone who has accepted Jesus Christ. And we are called to pray for one another to stay alert and to be, be mindful of not only the devil's attacks on us, but his attacks on our brothers and sisters. Here's the truth. We need one another, uh, and we must pray for one another. Paul ends this whole section by asking prayer for himself, right? So if if the Apostle Paul, the writer of more than half the New Testament, the beginner of the church that moved across the world, if he's asking for prayer, by golly, we better be asking uh, for prayer. So I want to close by just this thought. Who do we fight? Well, we fight the devil. We do not fight only against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil. What do we fight? We fight the devil's schemes, his lies of temptations and accusations. How do we fight? We fight with the power of the gospel, the work of God to save us and to keep us from the evil one. So if you're here today and you don't have a relationship with Jesus that comes through repenting of your sins and placing your faith in him, I have to tell you that you are vulnerable against the attacks of the enemy. You're going into battle without a weapon and without armor, but you don't have to. The scripture says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you can be saved and you can live in the peace that comes from knowing that you have been rescued by God. And maybe today, for the first time in your life, you're recognizing your need for that. You're recognizing your need to repent of your sins and place your faith in Christ. And I would just say that here in a moment, we're going to sing and some of our prayer team will be down front. Uh, and we'd love nothing more than to talk to you about what that means. What does that mean to surrender your life to Jesus? And uh, you can just come and just tell them, I want to give my life to Jesus today. And we can talk to you more about what that means. It could be that you're here today and you recognize, you're just real honest, that the devil is in full attack mode on you right now. Uh, it's interesting. This has been a kind of a tough week in our home. Uh, we had, my wife was sick. One of my sons was sick. Uh, we just had a lot of different things going on. And it's, it's uh, you know, interesting that I'm preaching on 
uh, spiritual warfare today, uh, that the devil uses those distractions, he uses his devices to accuse us and to tempt us. And it may be that today you're, you're sensing that in, in kind of a unique way for whatever reason. Maybe you just need to do, as, as Paul uh, instructed us to do, to just come and let somebody pray for you. Let somebody intercede for you. Go to the Father for you and say, man, lift up my brother or my sister. Comfort them in this time of hurt. Protect them in a unique way because they are your child, right? So we're going to sing and uh, we're going to spend some time just continuing to worship together. And some of our prayer team will be down front. So today, if you want to come and ask them to what it means to follow Jesus, or if you want to come and just have them pray for you, We'd love the privilege of doing that today. The rest of us, as we worship, we worship today with this recognition that God is good and all that he is doing in our life is for his glory and for our good. And he loves us, he sees us, and he knows us. And so today we worship from that reality. Let's pray together. Father God, we praise you today. God, we thank you for your protection. God, we thank you that you choose to show us your love and your mercy and your grace. God, even though we are so undeserving. God, as we read this passage and we talk about the work of the enemy, God, we do this because it's real. God, we we know his schemes. We know what he's doing to try to distract us and accuse us and tempt us. But Father, our hope is found in you and you are victorious. You are victorious. So God, may we live in that reality that even in the face of the attacks of Satan, God, our hope is found in Christ, our Redeemer. And it's in his name that we pray. Let's stand together as we worship today.